You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can sing those words, that you are our Savior, that you are our God. And Lord, I pray that as we approach your word, you give us humble hearts. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work among us, that you would bring encouragement where that's needed, conviction where that's needed. God, as we look at this story, we are so aware of the fact that we can miss the truth that is right in front of us. And so, Lord, I pray today your spirit would work and, and open our eyes and help us to see truth. And then I pray we'd have the courage to respond. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for sending Jesus for us. And we thank you for the truth that we are about to get into. And we pray that everything is said and done brings honor and glory to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to the book of Mark in chapter 11. Be there in just a moment. Our passage before us is the official kickoff of the Passion Week. It's the final days before Jesus' crucifixion. The entire ministry of Jesus lasted around three years. But each of the Gospels devote an inordinate amount of time to these final events. Matthew's Gospel, one-third is devoted to this week. Mark is the same. Luke is one quarter, and then the Gospel of John is almost half of his Gospel. And there's a reason for all of this. It's given in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that Jesus came not to have others serve him, but so that he could be a servant, so that he could be a slave, and that he could give his life a ransom for many. And so this week is the reason he came. He came so that that he could die on a cross. If I'm being completely honest, when I looked at the book of Mark and the stories in front of us, I was more excited about the story of blind Bartimaeus than what we have in front of us, the triumphal entry of Christ. And the reason for that is I think the story of Bartimaeus is really awesome. I I think that as we look at that story and we see a man who's a beggar who can't see, hears about Jesus, calls out to him, and then the crowd tells him to be quiet. And, And it doesn't slow him down at all. In fact, because of them telling him to be quiet, he, he calls louder, calls Jesus the son of David, have mercy upon me. And how Jesus then stops. And the crowd has to learn this lesson that Jesus' plan is maybe different than theirs. He, he calls the man to himself. And it's just a story that illustrates the truth that Jesus gives blind men sight. And we saw last week that in that story and among us, this Bartimaeus was not the only blind man. And so I think it's just a wonderful story that illustrates the truth that Jesus brings sight to the spiritual blind, that he's doing that even today. Then you flip the page to chapter 11, and we find ourselves in, in Palm Sunday. And it's certainly a good story. It's a story that's often spoken about in children's books and in Sunday school. And I, I think it's great for kids to hear, but I, I got into it and I thought, you know, this is great for kids to hear, but what do we, what do we have? And I found myself to be wonderfully surprised. There is so much here for us. This story is a fascinating representation of two vastly different understandings of what Jesus was going to do in Jerusalem. The dichotomy between the mission of Jesus and the hopes of his followers is striking. 
so abundantly clear that the follow, his followers thought that this is what he came to do and were so excited about it. And as Jesus rides in, he knows exactly what's going to happen. In our story, both Jesus and his followers are making plans for the future. And only one of those futures will come to pass. And so in verses 1 to 7 of Mark 11, we'll find the plans of Jesus. In verses 8 to 11, we will see the hope of his followers. So let's look at the book of Mark, chapter 1. The Bible says, And when they came nigh to Jerusalem, unto Bethphage in Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sent forth two of his disciples and said to them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as you have entered into it, you will find a colt tied, whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do you do this? Say that the Lord has need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without a place where the two ways met, and they loosed him. And certain of them that stood there said unto him, What do you do? Loosing the colt. And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. The disciples and Jesus have been traveling from Jericho, about 30 kilometers, and they've, they've made the long trip into Bethany. And, and this is an uphill journey for them. And so they've come to Bethany. Bethany is kind of a suburb of Jerusalem, about two kilometers outside. And then they've gone through Bethany into Bethphage, which is a town that they, we actually don't know exactly where it is, but it's probably somewhere between Bethany and Jerusalem. And as they're coming, Jesus comes up with this plan. He sends two of his disciples on a strange mission. And I can imagine all of this happening, and we're so used to the story, but can you picture what it would have been like for Jesus to pull out two disciples and say, hey guys, I got a, I got a mission for you. There's something I want you to do. Like, okay, Jesus, what, what can we do for you? It's like, you're going to go into this little town over here, and when you go into it, you're going to see that there's this colt. And when you see the colt, go up to it, untie it, and bring it to me. And the disciples would have looked at him and said, okay, that kind of sounds like stealing, right? Can you imagine if if we sent two of our teenagers to go downtown in Chatham and said, hey, go downtown, you'll find a bike there, untie it, and just bring it over here, right? Wouldn't go so well. So Jesus knows this and he says, if someone stops you, just tell them that God needs it. Okay, <laughs> we'll go with that. So, I can imagine the disciples leaving and kind of coming into the village and just hoping that there's no cult. Like, and then they see it's like, oh no. <laughs> all right, let's do it. Jesus told us to do it. So they walk up to the post and they start unraveling it and all of a sudden they're, hey, <laughs> what are you doing? What, what, what are you doing with my cult? I mean, this is exactly what they feared. And so they look at them and say, God needs it? And the man says, oh, okay. Go ahead. Right. I mean, it's kind of strange. And what's interesting to think about the story is we don't know whether this is Jesus' divine 
uh, uh, omniscience, his foreknowledge that he's seeing what's going to happen. He knows there's a cult there. He knows what's going to happen if they say this. And like, that could be it. It could be that Jesus just made these plans and the disciples are unaware of it. We don't know if this is God, Jesus as a human being planning this thing out or if it's a, he's using his divine attributes. But what we do know is that Jesus is putting a plan into motion. This is clearly his plan and he's about to carry it out. And so they bring the cult to him. And even every detail of this story points back to the Old Testament. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's all kind of going back to the prophets and what they had said would happen. And so Jesus, they bring this colt, they put their coats on it. Jesus sits on the colt and they begin toward Jerusalem. And actually the triumphal entry into Jerusalem should maybe be called the triumphal approach. Because what's likely happening here is the, the people from Galilee that's been following Jesus for a long time, that had just seen blind Bartimaeus be healed, have now followed him to Jerusalem with all of this expectation mounting. This is, this is what's going on. And so they're the ones, as he's outside Jerusalem, as he's approaching, that are shouting what they shout. And so now let's take a look at the plans of his followers. Verse number 8. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off of the trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before, and they that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he looked round about upon all things, now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. We have all heard this story before. And I think the same is true with the disciples, that as we've heard it before, because we've heard it so many times, it loses a bit of its strangeness. Imagine if we were just seeing this for the first time. Here is Jesus, who gets a donkey, to walk into Jerusalem as a king. And the, these people with him begin shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And, and all of this is happening. They're taking off their garments and putting them in front of them. They're cutting off branches of palm trees. And they're str- making this pathway for him to walk on. It, this would be a very strange sight. It would certainly be peculiar. But as we look at the Old Testament, we see very clearly what is happening. And the truth is, that's why the Old Testament is so essential for us. Because none of this makes any sense if we don't know what the Old Testament says. And so, what is happening here? Well, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, Zechariah wrote, and this is writing 550 years before Jesus, before all these events. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king comes to thee. He is just, having salvation. Lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. This is absolutely 100% clearly the Messiah who's now riding into Jerusalem on this colt. It's speaking of the Savior. And what did they cry? They cried, Hosanna. Well, what does Hosanna mean? Well, the word Hosanna literally means save us or save us now. 
It's a, it's a plea for help. Now, it had become a shout of praise, but originally it was meant to be a, this plea for help. And, and the interesting part of all of this is that they're pleading for what they need. They need salvation. They just don't fully know what they need. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, what's that all about? Well, Brother Tom read for us Psalm 118, verse 25. It says, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we look at Zechariah and we see this, this Messiah who's coming on a colt. And then we look at Psalm 118, Psalm of David, and we see that, that this is what they're going to shout as he comes in. And then if we look over at Jeremiah chapter 23, we understand why they said, Blessed be the kingdom of our father David. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. And a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. They are very clear about what they, they know is happening here. They know that Jesus is this Messiah that was promised, that he is the king who will sit on David's throne. And so they are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem as the king. And i got to tell you, it's impossible to convey the excitement that a Jewish person would have felt on this day. Okay, I like Christmas. I'm one of those people that just really like Christmas. It was even worse when I was a kid. And so my parents would put me to bed, and you know how parents put you to bed and then they wait like a, a long time for you to go to sleep because they got stuff they got to do? So they put me to bed and I would never go to sleep. And, and it got so bad that I, like at 2 a.m. I would open up the window of my bedroom without telling them and, and I would run around the block a few times just trying to, to tire myself out because I, I couldn't sleep. And then when I got gifts, I would sleep with them for a long time. And I'm talking like I would get a pair of skates. <laughs> You know, it was just really exciting, okay? The excitement they would have felt would have been more. Their king had finally arrived. All of the prophecies, 586 years they've been enslaved, they'd finally be set free. I mean, this is the day that every Israelite person had just been longing for and waiting for. Freedom from Roman rule, freedom from tyranny and slavery. The prophecies that had comforted them time and time again because they knew that this was coming had arrived. If you have ever anxiously waited for something and you remember what it felt like when that thing came to pass, just multiply that by 100. That's where they're at today. And so it, this is not like a solemn, like, I'm going to lay my garment so Jesus can walk on it. This is a party. This is exciting. They're doing everything. How can we worship our king? I don't know. Put your, put, your, put your shirt on the ground for him to walk on. That's what they got. And the funny thing is that even as we look at some of those details, like why Jesus was riding a donkey, we find out that King Saul and King David rode donkeys. It wasn't until later on that horses became the thing that royalty did. And so that's pointing back to the Old Testament. Why is it a donkey that had never been ridden before? That's made clear. Why is that? Well, it's because a king wouldn't use an animal that had been used for anything else in the past. They didn't use a working animal. They had an animal dedicated to, to them. And so it had to be a donkey that had never been ridden on. 
All of these details point to the fact that Jesus really is the king. And this is the only time in the whole Bible that we find Jesus riding on a donkey. And I know some of you think, well, no, that's not quite true because Mary was riding a donkey to Bethlehem and Jesus was in there. But the Bible never says that. We don't know that Mary rode the donkey. We just know that he had a donkey. So, the only time. Everywhere else he's walking, he walks everywhere. He gets the donkey for a reason. All of this is done for a purpose. And do you notice something? That as Jesus comes in, he accepts their worship. Earlier in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Mark, there's kind of this like veil that's over who he is. He does things to show the crowd who he is, but then he tells people, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody you've been healed. Don't tell anybody that now you know who I am. Because it's almost like he's trying to slip under the danger. But as he comes in Jerusalem today, there's no veil. He is who he is. They celebrate him as king, and he accepts that worship. In doing so, he is challenging the religious leaders. So I got thinking about this, and I thought, you know what? I bet. Like, we know that the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they wanted Jesus dead. That's not a secret. It had been true for a long time. But I, I can guarantee they didn't want to kill him on Passover. Right? Because on Passover, the city of Jerusalem swells from 100,000 people to like over a million people. Everybody wants to come to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. They're supposed to. And why would you want to create a martyr when everybody is there to see it? It doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus is almost riding in like this, accepting the worship, having the crowd go wild for him, and then eventually he's just about to go to the temple and, and do some damage there. He did all of that because he's forcing their hand. Because this is his time. Because he knows what this is all about. And so as we look at this story, I want to draw attention to a few things that I think we, we learn. I think these things are abundantly clear. The first thing we see is the misinformed plans of the crowd. They were ignorant. And I know that sounds kind of mean. I don't actually want to be too mean to these people, but they completely missed so much of what the Messiah was supposed to be. Now, often we hear things like, well, yeah, the same people, it was all the same crowd that, that was welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, saying, Hosanna in the highest, that then, you know, five days later shouted, crucify him. And there might have been some of those people there. But I think most of this crowd was made up of people that were already following him. And it was, it was primarily the Jews in Jerusalem, the leadership in Jerusalem, that they wanted him dead. So yeah, there might have been some people that had changed their mind, and some people that were just there to witness and, and kind of got caught up in it. But I think, I think a lot of these people were doing this because they really believed Jesus was the king. I'm sure that many of them, all of them, were disappointed. Uh, they were waiting expectantly for Jesus to make the next move. Maybe on Passover, he will be crowned king. Well, we all know what happened on Passover. I'm sure they were extremely disappointed with the end. But here is a group of people who do, do understand to a point who Jesus is. They had correctly applied Zechariah 9 and Psalm 118 and Jeremiah 23, along with the hundreds of other prophecies that speak about Jesus as the Messiah and King, the son of David. They were passionate. They were filled with hope and filled with faith. And so they weren't all that bad. But if you say that, then what is the problem? 
Why are they misinformed and ignorant? Well, here I think is the key. They only saw the part of God's plan that they wanted to see. They were blind to the rest of it because they didn't want it to be true. They wanted a king. They wanted immediate deliverance from their circumstances. They longed for freedom from Rome. They longed for the kingdom of Israel to be reestablished. They wanted it now. And so they said, Hosanna, meaning save us, save us from Rome. But they had no idea what they really needed to be saved from. They needed to be saved from their sins. So their desire, what they wanted to happen, clouded their understanding of the Bible. And I make, I'm making a point of this because I want you to, us to understand that that can happen to us too. It's possible for us to know what we think the Bible should say. We, we know what we think God should do. And we begin to read our plans into Scripture. We begin to, to create God who fits in our box and he does what we think he ought to do. And that's just not the right way to approach Scripture. Right? We, we come to it completely humbly saying, God, show me your plan. Let me cast mine aside. Show me who you are. Let me stop thinking of you exactly how I think you ought to be. Do you know the same Zechariah who wrote about this triumphal entry in chapter 12, verse 10, wrote this. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. Zechariah wasn't out of the loop. He understood that the Messiah would also be pierced, that there was suffering ahead. David, who wrote Psalm 118, and spoke about Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a thousand years before these events, wrote in verse 22 of the same psalm, the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. And that sounds a little strange to us, the refusal of the headstone, but when we look at the, the New Testament, we see Acts chapter 4 and 1 Peter 2 and Ephesians 2, we know that that headstone of the corner is Jesus Christ. And that that refusal is his death on the cross, the refusal of the Jews to have him as their savior. And so this is, in verse 23, the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. David knew that God's plan was amazing. The entire Psalm of 118 whispers the need for deliverance and for salvation. So much so that Martin Luther said it was his favorite Psalm. And then Jeremiah, who wrote 600 years before these events, wrote of a new covenant a new promise that would provide for Israel the forgiveness of sins that they needed and the new heart. And without the forgiveness of sins and the new heart, they had nothing. And so all of these guys were speaking about a Messiah who would not only come to be king, but a Messiah who would come, who would be pierced, who would suffer, who would provide salvation and forgiveness and a new heart. And so I think... Here's the point as we just look at these, this crowd. Um, we ought to be humble as we approach God's word. Sometimes we think we know what's up and we are dead wrong. How good it would be rather than trying to fit God's plan into ours, we just let him be God. The second thing that I think we see very clearly in the story is the goodness and the sovereignty of the Savior. 
here we see the good and sovereign plan of Jesus. In contrast to the confusion of the crowd, Jesus knew exactly what was happening that day. Kent Hughes is a theologian and pastor. He said, in all of this, we observe Jesus' painstaking premeditation. He had carefully ordered everything. The day and the hour were selected from eternity with countdown to perfection. This triumphal entry on the first day of the week would precipitate his terrible death on Good Friday. All of this is Jesus working out his plan, God's plan for redemption. Jesus enters Jerusalem in a dramatic fashion because he has come to give his life a ransom for many. He's intentionally walking toward the cross, his death. And he knows that before he is made king, he must suffer, that there could be no crown without a cross. This is where I want to pause and just ask the question, why? Why was Jesus' plan better than their plan? I mean, why wouldn't it be a good thing if Jesus had the power, and he did, to just become king at any moment? To take over and to reign with power and might? Why wouldn't it be a good thing for him to just do that? Why is Jesus' plan to suffer and die? John Piper wrote a book, and it's called 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die, and I have 53. I'm kidding, I just, I, I just have three. And two and three are almost the same. The first reason is this. Because Jesus came, he had to come and die, the reason that this, was, this plan is better is because Jesus had to fulfill all of Old Testament prophecy. Because they understood part of it, right? And they were pointing to different sections and they were shouting what they were supposed to shout, but they didn't get it all. As much as the crowd thought they knew what the Messiah would do, they were completely blind to passages like Psalm 22, where the the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be put up for all to see and gape at, and the dogs would compass it about, and that he'd be pierced. I mean, so many things that speak about the the details of Jesus' death. They were blind to Isaiah 53, that Jesus is the suffering servant, the lamb who would be slain to take away the sins of the world. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew that these people could have a deliverer. That if he wanted to, he could snap his fingers and become king of Rome. I mean, that's kind of what Satan offered him, right? But he knew that's not what they needed. He needed to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus came, second of all, because his followers needed deliverance from sin more than from Rome. They thought their biggest problem was the taxes and the laws and the rules and the fact that they felt pushed down where they lived. They didn't have their own freedom and their own land. What good would it be for Jesus to become king of a people who would sit on a throne for 50 years or have a king that's theirs for 50 years and then die and go to hell? What kind of savior would that be? If Jesus came just to be served for that time and let his followers then die without hope. He came because they needed to be saved from their own sin more than from Rome. The third reason is, he came because he loved us. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, 
but that the world through him might be saved. In other words, it wasn't just this, I'm going to set myself up as judge and king, and I'm going to rule over and condemn. I am coming so that I can provide salvation. And that's where, that's the verse immediately after John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why he came. Because he loved us, and he knew the only hope for everlasting life was through his shed blood. He came first to be our savior and to be our king. And he can't be our king until he's our savior. I can, I can recognize that it's true. Jesus is king of the universe. He's the rightful king of all things. But he's not my king until he's my savior. I don't want you to leave today without seeing clearly what's happening this moment 2,000 years ago. That as this is taking place, this is a story of people thinking Jesus has come to give them a better life, better circumstances, and praising him and worshiping him as the Messiah who would come to be their king. And Jesus sitting on the donkey, knowing how wrong they are, knowing what's going on in their minds. Do you know what Jesus' response to that praise was? He wept. He went over Jerusalem and he knew that they were blind, that they didn't see the whole plan, and he wept over them. And so we need to see this clearly, that it's very easily easy for us to like Jesus, to know things about Jesus, to know a lot of the story, and to miss the fact that he came to save us. And without that, nothing else matters. There are some here today that know why he came. They know he came to be our Savior. He is our Savior and King. And I hope that this story is a reminder of the importance of going to God, going to the Word, and letting his plan be King. Submitting ourselves to it, being humbly approaching and not assuming that we know all things. Um, it's easy for us to get obsessed with small portions of the Bible, small doctrines, and miss where the Bible places the emphasis. It places the emphasis on Jesus, on who he is, on what he did. It places the emphasis on the gospel. And we can't ever let that change. Alistair Begg says the, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And so we need to keep the main things the main things and, and just be humble as we approach Scripture. But there are other here's to, others here today, and maybe Jesus is not your Savior. You may even want him in your life. You think he's a good teacher. He was a good man. You want to follow some of his morals. You have some kind of belief in him. But you've never repented of your sin and begged him to save you. And if that's where you're at, you must know today that you are part of the crowd who didn't understand why Jesus came. He came to die on the cross. He came to take the wrath of God that I deserve and that you deserve on his own head. He came to be a substitutionary atonement, meaning he was substituting himself. He was taking our punishment, the one, the one that we had earned, we deserved, upon himself. And then he was providing for us his perfect righteousness. That's what the gospel is. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. And so we get to be forgiven. 
to be clean, to become a child of God, to be redeemed because of what Jesus did. And that's why he came. Friend, I'm going to say this as plainly as I can. He came to save you from your sins. And if you don't have him as your savior, you have nothing. That's where it must start. I'm going to close this morning looking back once again at Psalm 118. What should our response to Jesus be? Psalm 118, verse 19 says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go into them and I will praise the Lord. David is saying, God, open to me the way. Jesus is the door. And I will go in. And once I'm in, I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which righteous the righteous shall enter, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. He gets it, right? He gets that, that Jesus came to be a salvation and he needs to cry out to him. And then once he's cried out to him and he's been granted that salvation, then he responds in praise. That is the right response for all of us. To accept the salvation so freely offered to us in Christ. And then to respond in praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this story that just makes it so abundantly clear that the plans of men are so different from what your plans are, but that your plans are so infinitely greater than ours. And God, I pray that if there's one here today that doesn't know you, that they're not saved, that you would show them the love of Christ and the cross for them, that you'd show them that they're sinners in need of redemption and that they would just cry out to you. And Lord, for those of us who know you, God, help us to, to place the emphasis where you do, uh, to be humble as we approach you, to seek your plan for our lives. And then, God, I pray we'd be a people who are calling others to you. We thank you, Lord, for your amazing love and your grace and your mercy. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.